You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 340 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and today's episode is an interview that I did this week with international best-selling and national book award finalist Allie Benjamin. Uh, she wrote a 2015 novel called The Thing About Jellyfish, which was just wildly popular and it's so good. It's such a such an incredible book and so I got really really excited when uh, I was pitched the idea of discussing her latest novel, The Next Great Polly Fink, and uh, it was a great conversation. It was all about storytelling and the different types of ways that we tell stories and we get into the plot of the novel uh, right away as we usually do with with the interview so I'll let you uh, get to the interview to hear that part Um, but we really focus a lot about um, the idea of storytelling and how um, people can live and experience different ways and then in turn tell those stories differently based on how they experience them and just all sorts of really great stuff so it was a nice deep dive into the idea of how these stories are created and i think you'll you'll really enjoy it Um, if you want to get a hold of us you can always find us at professionalbooknerds.com we're on twitter and instagram at probooknerds and you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com as i asked before i'll I'll ask again uh, because it always seems to work for a few of you guys uh, if you wouldn't mind going into iTunes and giving us a five star rating maybe just leaving like a one sentence review about what you like the what you like about the podcast it really helps other people find us uh, and it you know helps us acquire more authors that we know that you'll want to hear so um, that's my little plea I uh, hope you guys will do that and then again check us out on social media all that good jazz um, and then I do just want to give a quick shout out to our podcast channel, Evergreen Podcasts. You can find them at evergreenpodcast.com. They have some really, really cool stuff that I think you'll enjoy. I constantly talk about Riffs on Riffs, which is just this awesome podcast all about how music nowadays is uh, tends to borrow from older music that you might not have heard of, and it's really awesome. Uh, they also have Wake Up Call, which is just this really cool podcast about ideas that'll kind of spark some imagination in your mind and and get your brain thinking in the mornings uh there is design everywhere which is a arts-based podcast which is really really cool um and then seven minute stories which again is one of my favorites it's just a seven minute podcast and uh, it's a really really cool um really cool podcast all about again the art of storytelling which really ties back into today's episode with Allie benjamin uh okay well I think that's just about everything. Again, feel free to shoot us a message if you need anything. But if not, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Allie Benjamin on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. (music) 
Hi everyone, it's Adam again, and I am incredibly excited to be joined by Allie Benjamin today, who is a best-selling author whose previous novel, The Thing About Jellyfish, was not only an international bestseller, but it was also a National Book Award finalist, and it's amazing. Her latest novel, The Next Great Polly Fink, is now available and generating just tons and tons of buzz. So first off, Allie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I always like to joke with authors, I never like to give away too much of the plot of your book, so I'm going to let you get us started by introducing our listeners to your latest novel, The Next Great Polly Fink. Great, thank you. So The Next Great Polly Fink is, on the one hand, a story of Polly Fink, who was a class clown, a prankster, he pushed every boundary, he infuriated the adults even while he made them laugh, and then at the start of seventh grade, he does not return to his school, a tiny very atypical school set in the middle of nowhere that looks like it's in a haunted house with shutters falling off their hinges and weedy vines sneaking their way up the exterior. Uh, there are goats in the back of the school that are there to manage the overgrown grass and weeds. Um, and it's there are only 10 other kids in the entire grade. And when Polly does not return, they don't know what to do because they miss their class clown. Uh, and they decide to stage a reality TV-style competition to replace him. The story is told through the eyes of a newcomer to the school who has never met Polly Fink. Her name is Caitlin Breen, and she is not happy to be at this very atypical school. She came from a much more traditional school environment, and she does not know what to make of this tiny classroom of kids who can't stop talking about Polly Fink. She has some trouble integrating. Uh, they decide to put her in charge of the Polly Fink reality TV <laughs> style competition. And it is through this competition that she manages to find her place in the school. As she's learning about Polly Fink, trying to arrange reality TV style challenges, she also learns more about her classmates and more importantly about herself. So I'm curious because the way that you are able to convey that um, that kind of idea of being the new person in a school is something that is so unique. I'm curious, did you have any experience of that growing up? Because you you do a really good job with Caitlin about how those experiences that she's going through about someplace being so wildly different. So is this something that you experienced when you were going to school? I myself was never a new kid, and the very idea of it terrified me when I was a kid. I would remember every year in my school, and I went to a pretty traditional suburban elementary and middle school, and I remember, like, at the start of every school year, there were new kids, and I would watch them with fascination and no small amount of terror on their behalf because I couldn't imagine doing that. I couldn't imagine walking into a room where... I didn't know anybody and just having to start over. Now, the downside of never having been a new kid, it's safe to never be a new kid, but you never actually get the chance to start over. Mm -hmm. And it turns out Caitlin is a kid who really did need to start over in a lot of different ways. 
Well, I can just tell you. So this school, Mitchell School, is, is smaller than mine, but I graduated with 47 people, so extremely mm. small. Um, I was actually the last graduating class before my entire school closed up. Um, wow. So we also had some weirdly unique situations. But I can tell you the few times, you know, you have a, a class of 47, you don't get too many people that are new kids. But the, the new kids who would come to our school, I the reason I think I associated so closely with this class is that... Um, it really reminded me of my school in the sense that when someone new would come, we would all stare at them as if they had, you know, seven eyes, like they were a complete outsider. And I can only imagine they looked at us, this little tight knit group of 47. And in the, the situation with the next great Paul, I think of, you know, about 10 kids, it can be really challenging to see that and try to find a way to find your place. But she does find her place. And as you mentioned, when they're searching for the next great, probably think and it's it's something what I really want to kind of talk about is the idea of storytelling and and the way that they use storytelling to convey what this person means to them and I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts about just the whole idea of them using these stories to create this larger than life image of Polly Fink. So the story is told through 14 different voices. On the one hand, we have Caitlin, which is a pretty straightforward first-person narrative, but that is interwoven with interviews that she does with the other kids and with some of the teachers as well about Polly Fink. Caitlin is doing her best to understand who is this Polly Fink, because in order to run the competition, she needs to get a sense of who he is. So she starts asking questions and they start telling stories. And some of the stories seem like they're believable. Some of them seem like maybe they're not entirely believable. And meanwhile in class, they're learning about mythology and they're learning about legends. And she's actually watching in real time as a legend is being constructed. As Polly begins to take on kind of a larger than life role in all of their minds. And he becomes more than just a kid who is in the class. He becomes this truly legendary figure. And I tried in the book to weave in as many different kinds of storytelling as I possibly could. I wove in parables and fables, hearsay, tall tales. Uh, there's storytelling in the form of emails and letters and the comment section of internet. And all of these different things sort of weave together. What I was, you know, what I'm really thinking about a lot and what it struck me like sort of like a, an underlying thing. And I don't even think this is a an aspect that a kid might think about. But I think something why adult readers will love this book as well is because when you're reading it as an adult, or at least something that I picked up on, is the fact that I couldn't stop thinking about all of these things in my past that I'm very nostalgic about. And it could be mm. things that happened to me in high school, which I happen to love my high school experience. But there are events in high school that someone completely different than me remembers entirely different. And I kind of okay. romanticize those things. So I just feel like I'm really interested in the, the fact that everyone is remembering this character differently. And, you know, some of it is true. It might all be true, but it might be true in, in their own minds. So as she's interviewing them and they're telling these stories that they remember about Pauly Fink, they are building this legend, this kind of mythology about who he is. He's becoming a larger-than-life character, somebody who is both real but also 
elevated beyond the real, almost like a celebrity status. And what she begins to discover is something that I, that I personally have always found really fascinating about storytelling, which is that it's a very active process. Mm -hmm. We are choosing which elements of a story to tell, which elements not to tell. A story is more than just a collection of facts about what happened. It is, uh, you need to center somebody, you need to, there's this active thing that happens inside of our brains as we tell a story that makes even true stories not completely true. No story can be the complete truth because the complete truth will just be a collection of facts. And so Caitlin is trying to sort through all of this to try to figure out who is the real person behind all of these different stories. And through that, she's sort of learning that storytelling isn't always something that you can count on to be completely reliable. That's such an interesting way. As you were saying that, I, I'm, I'm thinking about even just, you know, I just today when I was in our office, I was telling some different people stories about something that happened over the weekend in my family. And I realized that I was kind of telling each of them a slightly different version of it, just because mm -hmm. in my brain, I was almost doing like a choose your own adventure of a true thing that happened because you do each individual when talking about a specific person will pick and choose which things they want to focus on. That's brilliant. I've actually never heard storytelling described in that way, but I think you just nailed it. But that's what it is. You're kind of, okay, we, you like this part? Well, then let's go over here. Let's go over here. And what you wind up with is something that is not untrue, but also not complete truth. Well, and I think that to like to go back, you know, millennia using your story, I think that's why, if you think about it, there's all of these different stories that were originally, you know, told orally before a lot of stuff was written down, and you know whether they're they're fairy tales or parables or things that you know took place, and they there's been versions of them, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different versions. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact when someone is telling a story orally they pick and choose which parts they want to tell. So it could be, you know, a parable could mean something entirely different to two different people. And it's all about the story is made up all about how you choose to tell it. And I think that's a lot of what, you know, figuring out who Polyfink is, that's what makes it so unique and difficult because so many people, you know, even if it's a small class who are really close, they all have their own ideas of, of what he is. That's right. And the book begins actually with an epigraph from the Odyssey. It's from Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. But I was thinking about that a lot. And I was thinking about what happens when we move from oral storytelling, which is before Homer, before Homer wrote down these stories, mm -hmm. you had singers who would perform before audiences and they would sing. And it was very much a give and take that choose your own adventure that you just described, where they would respond to the audience. They could kind of read the mood. And then Homer came along and he wrote it down. And even now with translators, the Emily Wilson translation of the Odyssey is so different from other translations of the Odyssey. She's found different things to pull out. So even now we have this story that's thousands of years old and we're still finding new things in it all the time. It's still this extremely dynamic process. Well, and on top of that, there's this idea of, like, um, Cleos. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh-huh. So there's this idea. Cleos, yeah. Cleos. Okay, thank you. So yeah. it's this idea of, like, when you look back on something, and this is me to a T, you remember something, and you really only remember the positive aspects, correct? Mm -hmm. Often. 
often, or we only remember the negative aspects. That can happen too sometimes. So a lot of it has to do with the way that you, you know, you focus in on a, a certain thing about uh, a particular event. Like, for example, uh, my family, since I was a really little kid, we have gone to the same uh, farm every single fall to pick apples. And we've done it since I was a little tiny baby mm. all the way till now. I have nieces and nephews that we take. And if you were to ask me right now in May, I would be like, oh, wow, it's such a whimsical, beautiful time. We go and we pick apples and we get apple cider and we get apple fritters. And it's just like the most magical day of the year. But if you were to ask me in September when we go, like the day after we went, I'll probably tell you that it was hot and that the babies were crying and that no one had a Mm -hmm. good time. And I feel like that's that's kind of that definition. It's like you remember something based on one particular idea that it it makes you like maybe one particular emotion and then you tend to shape the entire story around that emotion i think that's right and we do that with ourselves too we do that with kind of the story we tell ourselves about who we are involves a kind of selective process we highlight things in our own memory um and we all do it differently in different ways and for some people it's they're constructing really positive images of themselves for some people they engage in a lot of negative self-talk but one of the things I was trying to explore with this book is who do we get to become if we're willing to try on a different story of ourselves? Who are we willing, who can we become if we are willing to say, okay, well, let me stop looking at this one thing that I did or this particular way that I've been looking at it and let me consider a different perspective. Um, and Caitlin really begins to do that as she reflects back on who she had been in her old school and the story she was telling herself about who she was and who other people were in relation to her. It wasn't necessarily the most positive thing. Um, She had some moments of real cruelty in her old school Mm -hmm. that she didn't really even consider cruelty. It was like she'd never been willing to look at herself through a different lens. And now that she's in a new setting, she's remembering things a little bit differently and starting to notice different things about herself and starting over in this new school is a chance to try on a new version of the story she's been telling herself about herself. Yeah, it's really interesting how you can use your current situation and experiences to form a new idea of your past experiences. And I think that's, you know, there's something really interesting in the story about while she's trying to to be a little cheesy while she's trying to discover Polly Fink she more you know really discovers kind of who she really is Mm -hmm. and who she wants to be Mm -hmm. and and I think sometimes we get stuck in stories we sort of cycle over the same story over and over again and it was really fun to create some moments for Caitlin where you could see her begin to set down these old stories she was telling about the the school that she's in now, the school that she was in before, the kind of person she is, and just walk away from some of what has been to go somewhere new and to become someone new. to take a quick break today to talk about our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. So as avid readers, we're always looking for ways to further our knowledge. Uh, We want to be able to learn as much as we can, but it's really hard in this day and age because we're all so busy. We're all doing a million things at a time, and it's really hard to 
find time to actually sit down and take you know courses or go to your local community college or even sign up for anything online that really needs uh, your dedicated time and that's why we really love the great courses plus and we know that you're going to as well because it lets you multitask uh, it's founded on the idea that education should be accessible to everyone and they make it possible for you to get access to on-demand learning from some of the brightest minds out there uh, they have professors from Stanford, Yale, Harvard, just about any place you can imagine. And they also have experts from National Geographic and Smithsonian. And these are places that you're able to go to on your travels, but they're people that you're probably not usually going to have access to. So it's literally college-level learning, but you don't have to worry about student loans, and there's no pressure of homework or grades. And uh, really, most excitedly, you can pick and choose which stuff that you want to be learning about. And they also have the app, the Great Courses Plus app, which makes it possible for you to learn whatever way works best for you. You can watch these, you know, on your phone, on your computers, or you can listen to them on the go, just like you're doing with this podcast. You know, odds are you might be sitting in traffic, going for a walk or something like that. Uh, once you finish this podcast, you can download the Great Courses Plus app and you can do the exact same thing with all of their wonderful uh, lectures series. So one that I have recently uncovered is they have this whole category of histories. Uh, Jill talked about one about the Dead Sea Scrolls that she was interested in. Um, if you are a longtime listener to the podcast, you know that I really love uh, the Pillars of the Earth books by Ken Follett. And that's all about the building of a cathedral um, and just the lifetimes that it takes to put one together. The Great Courses Plus has an entire lecture series on the history of the cathedral. So it lets you explore like the evolution and majesty and kind of like the intrigue of cathedrals all around the world. And it's really cool because they have these 3D tours with noted medieval historians. So you're able to go in and see kind of the history of how cathedrals started. And then you look at all these different cathedrals all around the world, and it's just really, really interesting. I am always blown away anytime I walk into a cathedral. But the first thing I always say is, I can't believe human beings built these things. So that's the one that I'm currently geeking out with this week. And we also recommend that you check out the great, great utopian and dystopian works of literature. Uh, this is a really fascinating exploration into the evolution of the genres of utopia and dystopia, and it's all the way from H.G. Wells to Margaret Atwood, all the way to Susan Collins for more recent content. Um, and just the way that this, these books impact uh, how we live our lives and in how they've impacted us over the course of history. So if you want to check out The Great Courses Plus, we have an awesome offer for you to be able to do it for free for a full month. So you can unlock the world of knowledge from the, of The Great Courses Plus right now, giving you a free month of unlimited access to their entire library just by using our promo code. So you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Pro Book Nerds. That's the great courses plus.com slash Pro Book Nerds. And we'll also have that in the show notes for you to click through if you'd like as well. Uh, I know I've been talking about this for the past couple weeks, but I really can't stress it enough. This is the coolest app I have ever downloaded. Uh, it's right up there with Libby in the sense that it gives you instant access to just untold amounts of knowledge that you probably wouldn't be able to find otherwise very easily. So, uh, Libby's like having a library in your pocket, and The Great Courses Plus is like having a whole team of lecturers that are just waiting there, ready for you uh, whenever you're ready for them. So go check it out. Again, one last time, it's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probooknerds. And now I'll let you get back to our conversation with Ali Benjamin. Um, so speaking of kind of who how these stories shape us and who we become and things like that. I'm curious, when you were growing up, like what type of storytelling took place in your household? Were you a, 
you know, read books at night type of a household? Were your parents sort of making up stories? I guess, like, how did stories shape the person that you were and that you became, obviously, being someone who now lives and spends your professional time creating stories? That's a really good question. Um, I was not a great reader, I'll say. As a kid, I often didn't read the stories I was supposed to, the books I was supposed to for school. I have a very vivid memory of trying to write a book report about uh, Old Yeller, and I hadn't actually read the book. Um, But when I did find a book that I loved, I read it over and over and over and over again, and I would really try to embody it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in third grade when I read Harriet the Spy, mm-hmm. and I carried around a spy notebook, and I would go around the neighborhood uh, trying to sort of be the person that Harriet was, <laughs> and it was like I was trying to essentially try on her personality, try on her way of seeing the world. Um, I had an older sister. She is also a storytelling a storyteller in her own way now. She is a documentary filmmaker. Um, she was old enough that she used to feed me lines. We would always, we were always going around the backyard and kind of playing these imaginary games, and she would construct this whole narrative. And I was very often um, in the position of being fed lines and being told that it was not okay to vary from the script. Um, but actually, that was interesting in its own way because that kind of forced me to imagine things that I might not have imagined on my own. Um, And I don't know, there was a lot of storytelling going on in the house with me and my sister. Um, My my mom used to read to us at the dinner table. We would have, um, whenever my dad traveled was when we were read to out loud. We were often very, uh, we did not behave well when it was just us and our mom, like she would read stories <laughs> to us and we would, uh, we were, you know, we would often, I don't know, kind of make fun of the book as we were listening to it. And yet what's really interesting is I remember that, I remember those dinners really, really fondly, mm-hmm. even though my sister and I were misbehaving. Um, I, they're actually still really special memories to me. That's so interesting you say that, and I think being read aloud is too is something that is also very um, unique to how the story is conveyed because of the fact because my my parents did the same thing too. Uh, my dad would read us um, like these Sesame Street books, and unbeknownst to my siblings and I, uh, he was just changing the story every time because he was tired of reading the same books to us. Oh. <laughs> we would like never notice that the story was different, but. My mom was a, a third and fourth grade teacher for 40 years, and she would do the same thing when we were growing up. She would read stories out loud to us, and the way that she would use voice inflection and be excited about the characters got us excited about them as well. And, and I'm, I'm guessing, even like you said, even as you were misbehaving, the fact that you were being read to probably creates that um, that memory that you have as opposed to if you just would have been sitting down and, and reading that book by yourself. I, oh, I think that's absolutely true. And I don't actually think anybody ever gets too old to be read to. Mm-hmm. I am still a part of a group in my town that gets together and reads aloud, often classic works. We actually read the Emily Wilson translation of The Odyssey while I was writing this book. So it was really fresh in my mind. And you just go around the table. And some people read brilliantly. Some people aren't terrific read-aloud voices. And yet there's something really intimate about the experience of hearing somebody read a story. And I don't think anybody ever really outgrows it. 
Oh, I, I completely agree. I'm a huge audiobook listener, especially mm-hmm. with this job and, you know, talking to authors at least once a week. I always want to make sure that I've read their books and there's only so many hours and I have fallen in love with audiobooks for that exact reason. There's actually a, an, an interview with Neil Gaiman where mm-hmm. he talks about the fact that there's this innate thing in each and every one of us that we love to be read to. It doesn't matter how old mm-hmm. or how young we are because we grow up on you know, in our parents' laps and they're reading us, whether it's, you know, Dr. Seuss or a Grimm's fairy tale or anything in between, we grow up hearing someone else tell the stories and then we can kind of create that theater of the mind while someone else is reading it. We can paint that picture for ourselves. And exactly what you said, there's absolutely something to, there's a magic of being read to where you don't have to focus as much on the words. You can just focus on the ideas that are being conveyed and then you can, you know, create that story however you choose to. I would love to see some kind of brain scans of people when they are reading a book silently to themselves and when they are hearing a book, because my guess is totally different parts of the brain light up. Okay, if you find that study, you and I can look at that together, because now I really want to look at that as well. (laughs) I promise, yes. Oh, that sounds awesome. So I'm curious, one of the things you have uh, in the book is, you know, you mentioned earlier, there's notes on message boards and things like that as as a version of storytelling. And I've seen more and more in books over the past, you know, five to 10 years, people using text message conversations and social media types of things where they'll insert little pages of that into their books. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you know, do you have any thoughts as a storyteller? And I apologize in advance because this is a really big question, but I'm Mm -hmm. curious, like with the way society seems like it's much more fast-paced now and everything's happening immediately on on Twitter and and Tumblr and Facebook and Instagram all these places how do you think like social media as a a tool is changing the way that we approach stories that's a really good question Uh, a couple things well one I would say even as technology changes really, really, really quickly and the storytelling can often feel really different, I think it's fascinating that no matter what the technology is, we're still finding ways to use it to tell stories. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that speaks to something really fundamental. I think as a writer, there are kind of your first thoughts story um which has a kind of vibrancy to it like when you know sometimes i'll do writing sprints where i'll make myself sit down and i'm not allowed to lift the pen from the paper uh you know until the you know whatever the time i've set for myself i just have to keep writing and i think of those as first thoughts and Mm -hmm. they're often really um there's a kind of heat to them that can be really exciting Mm -hmm. um it's often not the most reasoned, carefully thought out <laughs> thing. You know, like, often I need to edit it, often I need to find where, uh, sort of how to layer things together. Uh, it's rarely a finished story in and of itself, but it's got a real vibrancy to it that is sometimes hard to find when you've gone into that much slower, more thoughtful, deeper mm-hmm. place. And so I think it's a different kind of storytelling. Like the, when I am sending texts back and forth with friends of mine, they feel really different than when we're sitting across from each other, you know, with our tea, having a long, thoughtful conversation. But I think both have a kind of value and are tapping into something different, but also meaningful. Yeah. 
it's that's a really interesting way of putting it. It, it reminded me um, there's an author Pierce Brown. He wrote the Red Rising uh, science fiction series, which is very very popular. And um, when he was writing the first book, I read an interview with him where there's these in the books. There's these massively kind of violent and extremely intense war scenes and all these battles. And he's and someone asked him, like, how do you make those scenes feel so raw and real and, like, in the moment? And what he said is kind of exactly what you said. He's like, he'll do writing sprints, but he'll do writing sprints after having, like, two glasses of wine. <laughs> because hmm. what he said is, like, that sort of removes my ambition of being nervous about what I should write, and I can always go back and edit it later. But that way... I get my, like, initial, those snap thoughts down without second-guessing myself, and then I can go back and, and shape them. And I think in a similar way, that is very, like, writing sprints and tweets and text messages, I think those are all very similar, where it's, it's your first thought on a situation, and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad, but it's probably your most raw version mm-hmm. of that idea. Yeah, because in order to do it at all, you have to find an uninhibited part of yourself. Because it's really yeah. easy to self-edit. It's really easy to self-edit and to overthink and to say, no, I can't, I can't. Um, is this right? And when you're kind of in that mode, um, you're drawing on something that's in there that you might not find otherwise. So along those lines, are you a kind of a pantser or a planner when it comes to the oh, story as a whole? <laughs> I am such a pantser. <laughs> I often will create scenes that I have no idea where they go or if they go, and then I'm just holding this giant basket of scenes, and I have to try to figure out how to piece them together. I am such a pantser. I could use a little bit more of the planner in me, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. There is something really fun about the pantsing approach as well. You know what? I completely agree with you. When I am writing, I I try to be a planner because in my mind, like I shaping a full length novel, I'm like, okay, I need to have touch points that I need to hit. So I'll do a bunch of these touch points that I'm like, there's my plan, and then I'll go into one of those touch points and start writing the scenes, um, kind of flying by the seat of my pants, and then I will like go into such a left field, and I've got like fifteen thousand words that have nothing to do. They're like so far away from the next point I thought I was gonna hit, and it's like I feel uh-huh. like you either need to plan out like meticulously, or just be a panzer, as you said, just kind of like go and figure it out from from where you know from word one and and go that way. I think both work, but I think you kind of have to commit to one or the other. At least that's where my struggle is. I had a hilarious cab ride from a book event with another writer who plans everything out meticulously. He doesn't write a word until it's all graphed out in an Excel spreadsheet, exactly what's going to happen with which character when. And I said, really? Like, you know what's going to happen in every scene before you really even start putting words down? And he was like, well, yeah, how else would I know what to write? (laughs) And then he was asking me about my process, and I was like, I don't know. I just kind of, a scene pops in my head, and I think, well, that's interesting. And I write it down and then have no idea what to do with it or where it goes. And we just kind of looked at one another in the back of the cab, like, huh, that's interesting. Um, But it's a different process for everybody. Uh, It's so Yeah, because we've had authors tell us, like, they start writing a sentence and they ask a question like what if this thing happened and then that's how their story starts and they have no idea where it's going to go and then there's other people who are like i only know the plot twist at the end of my book and then i'll figure out the rest and it's like there there are there's there's so many different ways to tell a story and that 
kind of really gets back to the storytelling, you know, aspect mm-hmm. of, of your book where it's like, you can tell a story a million different ways. It's just how you choose to. What's interesting is in both my books, in Jellyfish and in Pauly Fink, I knew exactly how each of them was going to end long before I really even knew what the story was. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And, and it was just a matter of, like, how do I get there and how do I use these kind of random pieces to, <laughs> uh, to, to create this path um, to get here. I knew in both cases what the destination was going to be. <laughs> Um, so towards the end of our conversations, we like to ask all of our authors a set of questions that we call the Nerd Nine, because I like alliteration. Oh, wow. Yep. So these are lighthearted. Don't try to give them too much thought. What is the last book you finished reading? I actually just finished a book called um, Deep Work by Cal Newport, and it's about tapping into the really creative kind of unconscious part of your brain. And I thought it was terrific, and for any writer, I think it would be really a useful book. Uh, what is your favorite place to read? Um, great question. Uh, generally outside, if I can, but I live in Massachusetts, so for a lot of the year, I can't. <laughs> just like us here in Cleveland. Um, do you remember, you kind of, you might have mentioned this earlier, but do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading? Ramona Quimby. Ooh. Uh, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Probably Australia, uh, which was, it's sort of a destination in the thing about jellyfish that plays a very large role and I've never been there and it is absolutely on my life list. Uh, how about a favorite holiday to celebrate? I mean, Halloween, because you get to be all kinds of different people. It's <laughs> a little bit like writing a book. Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Oh, coffee. <laughs> Cats or dogs? Dogs. Those are, those are the right two answers, by the way. My co-host is not here, <laughs> so she can't defend cats, but dogs are the right answer. Uh, do you have a favorite food? Um... You know what first popped in my head is my anti-favorite food. I am not an ice cream person, and everybody thinks I'm nuts. I don't get ice cream. I don't get it. It's cold, and it's sweet, and it's messy, and I whatever the ice cream gene is. So that's not actually an answer to your question. Oh, man. Of, like, 200 author interviews, this is the first person anyone's ever just decided to say, I don't like this particular food. That's so funny. <laughs> what about, like, fried ice cream? Uh, it's a little bit more contained, and you eat it with a spoon, and so I can do fried ice cream, but it's not going to be the first thing I order. I think I like a lot of different foods, but when I don't like something, I really don't like it. <laughs> okay, all right, I'll let that work. And then the last one of these, uh, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you pick? That is a really tough one, because there's so many different people. Um can I say Marie Curie? Because I think she's amazing, and I think um, she, in her lifetime, was so underappreciated. She was sort of treated as this scandal again and again, and I just want to be like, history like, are, is going to remember all the good stuff about you. I, that's a great answer. And I don't think we've had anyone say Marie Curie yet, so that that's wonderful. <laughs> um. Last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading the next great polythink? I hope they consider the possibility that they can be anybody that they want to be 
as long as they tell themselves the right story about it. I, I just hope that they understand that when they tell themselves a story about who they are, they don't have to get stuck there. They can reach down, they can find a different kind of story to tell themselves, and whatever story they pick is going to be the path that they're on. That is absolutely perfect. Allie, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.